Extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And I'm Tianji Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high quality education, no matter what their background. Today, we're looking back at the five episodes we have devoted to talking about reading instruction to kind of chew over what we've heard and what we learned. But I want to talk about the moment we are in today, the week of April 16th. We're now in the third week of the murder trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin who knelt on George Floyd's neck until he was dead. Less than a week ago in the same metropolitan area of of Minneapolis, another police officer killed 20-year-old Dante Wright during a traffic stop. And body camera footage was released of a traffic stop in Virginia during which Army Lieutenant Caron Nazario was pepper sprayed, threatened and abused by two police officers. Stories of black men being brutalized and murdered by police might in some ways seem remote from the question we will be discussing today, which is reading instruction. But to me, they're connected. As a country, we are facing a moment of decision whether we want to be a nation where all citizens are equal under the law or a nation built on a caste system where some are lesser than others and are subject to random acts of unaccountable authority. This is not a new decision for our nation. We've faced it many times in the past, sometimes making good decisions and far too often making bad ones. I hope we can take this moment to move toward democracy. But if we're to do so, we must commit to all our fellow citizens that they are able to engage in public affairs and help shape the policies and decisions that affect our lives. At the very least, That means that we make sure all our fellow citizens are able to read, which is why reading instruction is such an incredibly important topic. Am I right, Tanji, to think of reading instruction in such a broad way and connect it in these kinds of ways? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought those two important incidences and events in in our ongoing history of being an American people to light today. Reading and and developing a literate mind is core to being a good citizen. You cannot be a good citizen if you are unable to read deeply, think critically, and act responsibly. And so reading sits at the core of every piece of learning and, and becoming a good citizen. So you are absolutely spot on for thinking of it in such a broad way. Well, I want to be a little careful because I think, I think, um, I think there are many countries that are, you know, where many people are, are illiterate. They can still be good citizens, but they are cut off from massive amounts of information. I mean, they can still have the good of their nation at heart. They can still think deeply. They can think, still think critically, but in, in today's, you know, life, 
if you can't read deeply into a lot of different topics, um, you can want to be a good citizen all you want, but you're just cut off from so much. Oh, absolutely. You there is there are limitations to it. There are limitations. Because, because it's from and 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 I, I appreciate the pushback in that, you know, they can still be good citizens, they can still think critically, but there's a certain amount of knowledge acquisition that you will be always dependent on from others. Exactly. You, if you're not able to read on your own um, proficiently, masterfully, um, critically, you are at the mercy of other people doing that job for you. And so you will be cut off from the information. You will be cut off from critical knowledge um, because all of it's not going to be what you hear. Some of it, some of what you get is only going to come, may only be available to you within the pages of a book. You know, they used to say, um, if you want African-Americans to not know something, put it in the book. They will never find it because they knew that they weren't able to read, that there were systematic processes in place for them not to learn how to read. I'm reminded of a story that was in James Anderson's book, um, Oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name now, but uh, Education of Blacks in the South. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, a, it's, a, it's quite an academic mm -hmm. title mm -hmm. and, and I have it upstairs, but um, uh, James Anderson wrote sort of until recently kind of the definitive work on uh, immediate post-Civil War uh, education of African-Americans in the South. And um, there was a story in there of a woman who, came to one of the many, many informal schools that were set up by enslaved people and formerly enslaved people. And one of the things she said was, I don't I, I want to be able to make sure I'm not cheated. I mean, at a very, very basic Absolutely, level. Absolutely, you know, right? Like I want to be able, level. that's right. At the most basic level, I want to be able to know that if I'm counting, if I'm reading something, if a legal document comes you know, past my desk, comes into my hand. I want to know that I understand what's happening to me, you know, and it brings me right to one, you know, we talked about the five episodes and it brings me right to Dr. Tatum's, you know, idea. All text is available for all kids, right? Like every text. And we that was such a powerful um, statement. I keep coming back to things that he said. Me too. And, um, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But so before we, so we agree that these, you know, the question of reading instruction is really deeply connected with democratic values. Um, and I think we heard that throughout the episodes, actually, um, from Nell Duke, from Mark Rosenbaum and, and others. But, but before we plunge in too deeply into what we heard during the episodes, uh, we devoted to reading instruction. I want to say that a lot of people like to say we've made no progress in reading achievement. That's not actually true. If you look at the assessment known as the long-term NAEP or National Assessment of Educational Progress, we've had two periods where there was enormous progress. The first was in the 1970s and 1980s when the reading achievement of African-American and Latino nine-year-olds improved hugely. If the trajectory had continued, African-American and Latino students were on track to match white students' reading achievement. But in 1988, progress suddenly stopped and then achievement, particularly for African-American nine-year-olds, dropped. 
The second period of improvement was in the first decade of the 21st century when all groups of students improved, but African-American and Latino students improved faster. The last time the long-term NAEP was given was 2012. So for more recent results, we've had to rely on the more frequently administered main NAEP. I hope I'm not losing people on all these uh, NAEP uh, uh, references, but on the main NAEP, the nation's reading achievement has been flat since 2012 with some declines. I don't know anyone who can say with certainty what led to the improvements and what led to the subsequent stagnation uh, periods, but uh, Rucker Johnson makes a very strong argument in his book, Children of the Dream, that the improvements in reading scores in the 1970s and 1980s can be attributed to school integration efforts. And it's certainly possible that the subsequent stagnation occurred because in the late 1980s and 90s, those integration efforts stalled. But what accounts for the improvements from roughly 1999 to 2008? And how can we as a nation jumpstart improvements so that all students are able to read well enough, not only to pursue their personal interests and ambitions, but are also able to understand the complex issues facing us as a nation and help us establish a stable democracy? These are some of the questions we've explored in the last few weeks. And we're gonna sort of talk about them more today. Just as a reminder, we began this series after the Council of Chief State School Officers asked its members to make reading instruction a key focus. This is the organization that represents state school superintendents and commissioners, so this is a big deal. I've linked to the council report in the show notes so you can go read it for yourself, but at the core the CCSSO is asking all state school superintendents to organize their work and the work of the departments around improved reading instruction. So Tanji, we've been able to talk with some really amazing folks in the previous weeks about reading instruction. We talked to Alfred Tatum, who talked about the need to ensure that students don't just learn to read, but learn to read at advanced levels. Nell Duke and Mark Rosenbaum about trying to establish a constitutional right to learn to read. Tim Shanahan and DJ Bolger about what the re science of reading says about reading instruction. Carol Jago and David Leiben about what kinds of instructional materials schools should be using. And Lisa Coons, Heather Pesky and Catherine Tarka about what Tennessee and Massachusetts specifically are doing to improve reading instruction. And I wonder if all these conversations have left you with some overall observation that we should start our conversation with. I think before we go there, I want to uh, go back to the NAEP that you were talking about earlier. Nine-year-olds are important because nine-year-olds tend to equate with third grade. And third grade is a critical uh, year for which students, one, begin to start testing high stakes for reading. And it is the grade at which reading critically shifts from the kind of reading students do. So third grade at nine-year-old uh, level is really important to understand where students are relative to their uh, being taught how to read and read well. Wow, uh, we did talk to some amazing people. And I think, you know, as I alluded to Dr. Tatum earlier, all texts belong to all kids, you know, and this idea that we have to make sure students are doing more than just being proficient. We keep talking about proficiency, 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 and mastery, but we don't talk about advancement. 
as though advancement is sort of not a thing we should be aspiring to. And we certainly don't talk about advancement when it comes to students of color, particularly um, African-American students, and even more particularly to African-American boys. We keep drilling down to, as he said, who those are. He's, he used this term, they're undeserved, therefore they get underserved. That was just in, incredible to me, you know. And then, you know, really thinking about what Nell Duke and Mark Rosenbaum talked about regarding the use of the legal system, right? You know, we know that the, that the United States Constitution does not have, you know, a right to education that sort of couch it under the educate, under those like national good. But the idea that it's understood that students deserve a right to literacy as a common good and you have to fight for that if you are not a person who is culturally and racially valued in this country was just breathtaking to me, you know, and it really brought home, you know, a lot of critical thoughts I have about why we are still here in these disparities, you know, these designed, orchestrated and continuously carried out disparities. We have to fight against them in order for kids to get what we say all kids deserve. So that was just something incredible to me. One of the things Mark Rosenbaum said that really stuck with me was, if we were to design a caste system, or if we were to design a system to support a caste system, an education system to support a caste system, we couldn't do better than uh, organizing. Oh, absolutely right. In New York City, he was specifically talking, talking about, about New, New York, York City, City yeah. but it it it's generalizable to other other places as well. Oh, it absolutely is generalizable to every place. You know, when we think about yeah, it's particular. It's it's incredibly different. The the New York City system is very difficult to navigate. You know, it requires books for parents and students to study, and you know, so New York City, I think. Uh, is sits at the top, but there there are a lot of places that try and emulate that. Um, and you know, so um, I'm not saying it's unique. It's just uh, it's a great maybe, example. Yeah, it's, it's a, a best example. practice in how to implement. <laughs> we look for best practices in lots of different areas. New York is a best practice in how to institute educational injustice at its highest level. Um, I remember being in New York. Um, interviewing a bunch of students up in the Bronx. And one of the students said to me, said to us, we do some focus groups, and she said, it is like we are being educated to occupy certain places in society. And she was very keen on recognizing how her friends in other parts of the city were being educated differently than she was as being a member, you know, a student going to a Bronx high school. So it's really quite interesting and astute of her to notice that, you know, even in that system, particularly in that system, in a place which I think is so interesting is that they count themselves to be so liberal and so, you know, all about justice. And, and you know, they are really creating an educational caste system. So you're absolutely correct on that one. Well, and and just to just to give um, give her her due, I think the term caste has really uh, come to the fore in, in part because Isabel Wilkerson has applied it to the 
United States and how it has organized around race. Um, it has organized its caste system around race. Um, but we, as Americans, I think, do not like to think we have a caste system. That is is kind of... Anti-American, uh, actually. It's anti-American, actually. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that we don't do so, these things to people. So when you when we talk like this, it creates a certain amount of you know cognitive dissonance and and discomfort, and the way to, I would argue, one of the ways to work ourselves out of that cognitive dissonance, is to ensure that all kids learn to read at a high level, and I you know right, um, and uh, and all that that implies. So so. One of the questions I think educators have is, well, yeah, sure, you know, that's all well and good, but how do you do that? And we we didn't actually get into the nuts and bolts of that in the in this series um, of uh, about reading instruction. We didn't sort of go through, you know, you have to build sounds first and. Uh, Right. Yeah, we didn't do that. We challenged people to press against the narrowly constructed idea of what the science of reading is all about, particularly when we talked to Dr. Shanahan and Dr. Bolger, when they talked about the science says of reading right? Like there's a science of reading that deals with phonemic awareness. There's a science of reading that deals with building comprehension. There's a science of reading around how to get, you know, students to deal with their phonics and other, all the other of the five elements. But we didn't ask people to do that. We wanted them to really consider that it's not this overly simplistic binary of phonics or not phonics. And, and we keep getting at this nasty reading war which subjugates kids to adults ridiculousness <laughs> not to put too fine <laughs> a point know, on it. it yeah right and you know that i mean you and i have talked about this the critical question is do you want every child in your building district state classroom to know how to do that thing we call reading and if you do, then you're going to do the things that make it happen. And you're not going to rely on, well, it's whole language or it's phonics or it's this. You're going to take the body of knowledge. You know, we heard, we heard Nell Du talk about that. We heard Dr. Boulder and Dr. Shanahan and sorry, it's actually Dr. Duke talk about all of that. Really talk about you're going to use the full breadth of proven research evidence of structures and pedagogies that actually make that thing happen, right? And you're going to do that because from the research that we, you and I have read and what they have shown, showed us is that every child actually can do it. Like there is no reason why every single child cannot learn how to do that thing we call reading. One of the things that Tim Shanahan, Dr. Shanahan talked about was that certain kinds of practices are, you know, it just nudges it a little bit over, a little bit more. So if you read aloud every day to every kid, that'll get a few more kids. If you, um, 
you know, go through diphthongs and sound blends and so forth. That'll get a few more kids. It's not, it's not that it's, it's not the idea that every child learns differently. That's not exactly true. Every like human brains are human brains and they, uh, they kind of learn in pretty similar ways, but different things will hit different kids at different times differently. Um, so it's not, it's not that they're learning differently necessarily, but you know, the, the ooh sound might not, you know, it just might not click for them this time around and next time around it will. Um, you keep wanting those aha moments. Oh, and you need to generate them over and over and over because let's face it, English is a complex language. It's a very complex language. And it doesn't have a, a full sound, you know, sound letter correspondence. Right. It's not a one-to-one ratio yeah. of letters right. to sounds and blends right. to sound. Right. Absolutely right. Spanish Absolutely is easier because right. it's one sound, one letter, done. You're done. We're done. <laughs> right? Yeah. We had to get fancy. We, had, <laughs> yeah, to we get had to fancy. get really fancy. And part of it is the richness of the English language because it draws on so many language traditions and so forth. But and I think what what we what we try to do is help people parse out some of the structures. And I think Dr. Shanahan, because he has such a sort of like easy way of helping folks understand it, broke it down. Like yeah, there's all these different pieces. And like you said, he talked about, you know, it's that incremental marginal growth. Right? But then there are some big ticket items that you have to build on. Like there's a baseline around which you have to start. Right. And we can't keep blaming families. We can't keep blaming all these things around culture or structure. Reading is reading like the letter A is kind of like the letter A. Like it isn't going to change just because I'm a black woman and you're a white woman. Like it doesn't change. Right. And my ability to pronounce the various ways in which A can be pronounced isn't based upon whether or not I'm a black woman and you're a white woman. Right now, there will be some cultural um, intersectionality points, right? Intersectional points by the sound production based upon my home language or my culture. You know, my cultural dynamics will intersect with it, but my ability to produce the sound is not a ba- my race or culture or gender or economics are not the barrier from w- for which I may not produce that sound. Right, like it's that's not the barrier. If you don't teach me the sound, that's the barrier. Like that's the barrier. Like a person's race, gender, economics is not the barrier that makes them unable to acquire the skill of reading. And that's something I think each of them, in their own way, made very clear. Yes, I th- I thought um, each of our each of our guests, and you know, I. I we had some of the top people in the country. Yeah, we did. Lucky us. <laughs> Lucky us. How do we get that to happen? <laughs> right. Um, and so I feel really good about that. One thought. One thing I thought was really interesting was that the state folks, the assist, uh, we had Lisa Coons, assistant uh, commissioner in uh, Tennessee, who's leading the literacy work, and Heather Pesky, uh, uh, an assistant commissioner in Massachusetts, who's leading the work, the literacy work, um, and Catherine Tarka, uh, who works with her. And they all kind of shied away from using the term science of reading. It's become a bit of a, 
uh, flashpoint among people. Because if you if you say the science of reading, uh, that imply for some people that implies a rigidity that science should never have. Like science is not, and and we heard DJ Bolter, we heard Tim Shanahan, we you know like we heard Nell Duke. They would never say science says. They would not say. They would say. The evidence supports doing this. And if you do this, you will have a, you know. The likelihood likelihood of a positive or negative result is X, Y, Z. That's the way scientists talk. Just talk about it. That's right. But I think it's our need to have absolute answers about things that makes using science as a bludgeon to hammer over people's heads. Right. The science says this is what you got to do. So do it because we want we want we know that these disparate outcomes are growing in some ways. Right. And so people want an answer. And I think you're right. The idea that science has now become the word science has now become a flashpoint that people are beginning to shy away from is actually troubling. So we've got to ask ourselves a whole nother series of questions as to why is why are we using science in such a way as to make it um, difficult for students to get the kind of instruction and materials that they need. One of the things I've really noticed in my sort of going to uh, schools and districts that are high-performing and rapidly improving, some of them come at reading instruction with a great deal of knowledge and skill and good programs. And, you know, they're just like uh, uh, Tim Shanahan, Nell Duke on steroids, right? (laughs) Others, though, have kind of fumbled their way through. So they're, um, I'm thinking in particular of a school where they lived in a district uh, that mandated balanced literacy and mandated a certain kind of uh, curricular materials And they didn't question it. It wasn't that they questioned the ideology. They didn't question the ideology. They didn't question the research. They didn't question the science. What they said was, yeah, but it's not getting the results we need. All our kids are not learning to read. So what else can we do? And they just kind of fumbled their way into the science of reading. Um, they They had to kind of go, well, you know, our kids are... They're not getting They're it. They're not getting this. it. So what, what else? Exactly. Can, yeah. What else can we do? Oh, yeah. you know, one of the things they don't seem to even hear the the sounds of English very well. Many of them came from other uh, from other countries. So we we better like make sure they can hear the sounds, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so they stumbled yeah. their way through, and I've almost begun thinking that what's more important is not. It's so much easier. It's so much more efficient if you know a lot. I'm not saying teachers shouldn't know a lot and principals shouldn't know a lot. But I almost feel like that comes second in a way to the desire to serve the children. Oh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Because what you're dealing with, that desire is attached to an underlying belief system. Exactly. 
right? That is attached to an ideology, which is attached to a bunch of other things, right? And so if your underlying ideology is one that one, every kid can read, every kid should read, then you have this belief that, okay, then they can do it, right? And so if you see that the thing you believe isn't happening with the structure in front of you, then you go find a new structure to make happen what you believe is possible. Exactly. Right. And so that, so that's what we, I think part of what we did not get to, we got to a little bit is the real underlying notion of belief systems. Exactly. Like we have got to name that as a nation, we have absolutely been okay with certain groups of kids knowing how to read and reading well and reading at advanced levels and other kids not. Like we are okay with it. And so um, for the school district you're talking about or the school itself you're talking about because it could be, you know, two schools within a district having different sets of ideologies moving through their buildings. And so that framework that every kid can read and what we're doing right now isn't working so we must do something else is is connected to their belief systems. And we have to get to the point where we are willing to say that we don't believe every kid can or that every kid should. And then until we name it, then and be and feel the shame that it brings about because it's going to bring about that you know negative feeling. I don't know if we could get past it. And it, it to me, this is such a central issue um, because if you believe, it's exactly what you said. Um, I mean, I'm just I'm just here to kind of say yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, check, <laughs> check on but, that box, right? But it's so core because if you if you are told, use this program, whatever the program is, it doesn't matter what the program is. It can be the best program, the worst program, whatever. It's going to work. Let's say it's the best program. It's going to work for 80% of the kids, say. Well, what are you thinking about the other 20% of the kids? If you say, well, that's our program and it's supposed to be really good. So if it doesn't work for you, I guess, you know, you're not very bright. And right. right. It becomes a kid issue. It's right. a kid it becomes issue. A, it's a, it's a kid issue. issue. That's and right. if, but if you say, oh, well, you know, it worked for 8%, that's great. But what are we going to do for the other 20%? So we, we need to find something else. Unless you do that, um, you're going to leave behind some percentage of kids, no matter what oh, yeah. your program is. No matter what your program is, because reading is a systematic process. And you have said programs can help it, right? But at its core, it is a systematic thing you have to learn how to do. You know, you have to learn how to do it, Um and you have to have wide experiences doing it with lots of different texts and lots of different with lots of different great words like um, Dr. James talked about the beauty, the gorgeous, right? the, 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 the gorgeous, the gorgeous text. right, the gorgeousness of the words of, of science and math. And we don't take that perspective. You know, we don't take the perspective of it being gorgeous and, and beautiful and and kids really getting into it. Um, 
because we have this, this is saying that says, you know, we talk about John Dewey, but we teach like Thorndike. Like this very Thorndikean perspective on teaching because we're so, you know, um, outcome driven from a linear perspective, right? We, we talk about John Dewey and we love him, but when it comes down to the instructional process, we take a very linear Thorndikean approach, which doesn't work for a lot of kids. You know, and so we we decided that certain kids are okay leaving behind. That's the issue. We're okay with leaving some kids behind. And and by the way, like white parents don't think your your kids are immune from this. Let's not think Let's that not because think let me that. help you. It's more right. likely that black kids, Latino kids, poor kids will be um put into the category of, well, oh, well, but white middle-class kids are as well. And if you look at the NAEP reading scores for uh, children of white college educated, I mean, you have to dig very deep into those NAEP uh, data sets, but it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. good. In fact, the, in fact, the only group of students, I believe, and you can check me if I'm wrong, that are that that are still growing are the kids who are at the advanced levels. So the kids at the advanced levels are maintaining certain levels of growth, whereas everybody else is either stagnating or having measures of regression. And so that's the thing, right? And, like, and you by know, the way, we only have nine percent of our kids advanced. So just that's a there's right. a lot of kids a, who are not. It's not. Right. That's right. You know, and, we, and when we talk about coded language, you know, we use that coded language around, you know, different groups of students who are in different parts of our country. You know, we talk about urban kids because we know it means a thing. And we talk about suburban kids because that means a thing. And we're talking about rural kids because that means a thing, you know, and we, we need to talk about what's happening in rural neighborhoods that are almost as under-resourced as neighborhoods in cities. Oh, you know, and horrendously, if, if not more so, horrendous. if not more if, so, um, right? It's like, it's, yeah, if you, if that's something that we don't talk the, about. The um, second season of Extraordinary Districts, I went to Cottonwood and Lane and um, Cottonwood, the only way they are able to operate is that three of their teachers are officially retired and work at, as stip- at a stipend rate, which is... That would never happen in I a mean, city. It o- would never. OMG. It would I'm never happen so in sure it would never happen, but it's like... It's less likely, it's to, less happen, likely to happen, Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is extraordinary. Um, they went 15 years without any textbook money at all, I think, in the state. Um, which gave rise to those uh, stories of some uh, some kid found a uh, a textbook in Oklahoma that Blake uh, Shelton had used. <laughs> you know, oh, wow, that's a while ago. It's a while <laughs> that's ago. A while exactly ago. right. Yeah, I mean, you think about you think about communities and you think about rural communities and and their level of under resourcing, and you think about cities. And it's and not just cities, certain cities, you know, like, you know, there are certain parts of Manhattan that are not under resourced and it's a city. Right. And so we got to be really careful about what kind of education is happening in what places, 
by the name we give it, you know, and this idea that reading had, and one of the things that Dr. Tatum talked about was he, he talked about the need to bring back disciplinary literacy across all grades, right? You want to increase reading, you want to increase relevance, you want to increase engagement, stop relegating reading to the English classroom, right? Like making it open, you know, and, and bring, he talked, remember that he talked to us about rocks, you know, and how rocks belong to every community. It's just a matter of what are they doing in the communities where you find them, you know, and really getting kids tuned in to the relevance of systems in their neighborhood, right? Like the, like if I'm in biology, I'm going to learn about biology, but how to make it relevant deals with what I'm living through in my own community, right? We're talking about water. Water is water, but water is different in Flint than it is in Hackensack, New Jersey, <laughs> like, right? Like, you know, when we think about those, those ways of how do we understand what reading is really all about and this need for kids to move to advanced levels of reading is really just an incredible idea. Absolutely. And, and that gets to the conversation we had with uh, David Lieben and Char- Carol Jago um, about high quality materials. And what I thought was so interesting, so um, CCSSO, the Council of Chief State School Officers has put a huge emphasis on high quality materials, high quality, get the high quality materials into kids' hands. And of course, this is kind of Carol Jago and David Lieben's, um, this is what they, this is their, this is their life's work at this point, right, is high quality materials. And yet they never said once if we just get those materials in kids' hands, that'll solve the problem. They never once said that because they know nope. that's not true. They know it's not true. And right. I mean, the the idea that we ask teachers to teach reading or anything with low quality materials is really horrifying. <laughs> but we I, do. I, you know, and by the way, they're very do. expensive. Yeah. They're oh, we won't even talk about the expense, which is why folks get very reluctant about how to change it. Yes. You know, if you're a school district, a a district, and you have chosen, you know, something that costs you $10 million over, and it's not just the expense, but it's the time. Right. So it's $8 million over five years. You can't back out of that. Plus you've got a contract for professional development. For development and this and that. Right, right. So how do you do that? And the workbooks and the CDs and the online stuff. I mean- and go, it's, it's a, a racket. It's a it's a bit of a racket, and it's hugely expensive. And once hugely you've made expensive. that commitment, it's like it's like I you know I buy a really expensive horrible stove that really never works, but I don't get rid of it for a long time because I already because did. Because you got to save face. <laughs> I have <laughs> to save face, and I don't face. necessarily have any more money to buy it. Yeah, the more money, right. right? Unless you were fortunate, and this happened a while ago when we talked to Dr. Sanja Lucy's in Baltimore where she had purchased a really, she purchased the right high quality piece, but then she had to go back. And and thankfully she had a grant that allowed her to supplement the curriculum that they had purchased with the right, with more expansive materials that were not just touting black blight and oppression and overcoming. You know, they she was able to get a better, to get a supporting curriculum that helped her students in Baltimore see themselves 
through a more expansive lens. But how many districts can do that? Well, let me, I mean, this is a bit of your bailiwick. This is what you've been dedicating a fair amount of time to the last year or two is looking at curricula, looking at them from the lens of, you know, are they, um, I, I'm, I'm going to use the word equitable because it's, it's, it's shorthand for a whole host of things, uh, but it's a, it's a little, uh, but in, a, in any case, culturally affirming, you know, all the, all the adjectives we use when we say, <laughs> when we say, you know, it's good for, um, it's good for all kids, but, per, you know, if we're thinking particularly of Baltimore, we're thinking we want African-American kids to be able to see Mm -hmm. um, themselves themselves and uh, not, it's not just, it's not just that they see themselves because we don't educate kids just to see themselves. Right. It's that that they can see the possibilities. They can see the, they can, they can identify as humans, uh, and link themselves as humans to this whole world through a whole s- series of uh, texts that connect them. So they might start with somebody who looks like them and end up with, you know, whoever, who, like wherever yeah, you want to go. I think what it means is it's, it's, it's not just, and you're right, it's not just see themselves, it's the how. Because African-American students and other students of color see themselves in text. It's how they see themselves in text. That's the question, right? And so if I only see myself in text in February, that's a problem. If when you show me myself in text in February, it is a narrowly constructed identity frame you want me to adopt, that's an issue, right? If when I see myself in text, it is written from an outsider perspective, which continues to advance stereotypes, that's another problem. So we begin to ask ourselves questions about who is saying what about whom and how, right? So, you know, there's a, one of the um, curricula that people are buying a lot of. They have a very extensive visual library, and it's a beautiful visual library of art and everything like that. They have 92 images in this visual in this visual library, so art library. Of the 92 images, only one of them contained an African American person. Then the you know other, you told me that and I, I told you I, that and, and you, you showed it to crazy. me. And I, I was it like, oh my gosh, that's only one. Only and it was all American. One. It, it was all like, American. Yeah. That's right. And and it was of a person who when you look at it carefully it was clearly probably an enslaved person given the time frame of the you know of the art of the piece of art um it was done by a person who was not an african american um and then they had photographs of japanese children who were during you know during the internment those were beautiful but all by Ansel Adams not by a japanese person and the only uh, the person who was japanese their work depicted nature, which is, you know, common to Japanese art. But every other image, they had two images of um, indigenous chiefs, of tribal chiefs. They were done by two, by a white gentleman. 
So of all of the maybe six out of the 92, of the six of 92 images of people of color, not one was done by a person of color. Not one. And so, but this is, this is a um, curriculum that is heavily touted. You know, it meets all of the requirements of considerations for high quality, but that was a piece of high quality that's not taken into account. So the representation is not accounted for when there are discussions about what is or is not high quality. Right. And so when we talk about issues of equity and we, which Ed Trust always talks about, when we talk about curricular representation. We have to ask a question about, well, if it's high quality, how can that be if it perpetuates stereotypes? You know, and, and another another highly touted um, uh, resource that people are paying a lot of money for has this unit in kindergarten, K through two, one of the units is on, you know, helping kids socialize to school and being, you know, um, not paying attention to distractions. So how to ignore distractions. The leading image into the unit itself is of a white female teacher. All the little second graders are around her. She has a mix of mostly white students, but there's an African-American girl, African-American boy. I think there's one Asian child. But all of the students are looking at the teacher. The one student who is not facing the teacher is an African-American male. And he's facing, his body is turned, facing a little white girl sitting next to him. And you can see her hands reaching towards him and his hands reaching towards her. And the, and the title says, Ignoring Distractions. So if I'm the teacher, what am I going to see? I see an African-American boy who's doing what? Not facing the teacher and looking like a distraction. So how does that disrupt representational thought? How does that disrupt ideologies? It doesn't. It keeps it going. Another one, I was working with an, uh, um, another organization on their curriculum, and there was another area where they're talking about how to help kids in social studies, how to help them be good citizens. And it had, on two pages, a group of little white boys who were shoveling snow to help their neighbors get out from under the snow. The very next page has a little black boy. He is frowning. He looks very sad. And it says, Jamal has to go to school every day and pass by this graffiti-laden, dilapidated building. Nobody's going to help him. What can you do to help him clean up his neighborhood? The top of my head is about to explode. So I'm. <laughs> and people are paying. When I tell you a crap ton of money, Karen, you know they're paying a crap ton of money to advance these very subtle ways of entrenching thought. I'm, I'm going to say that's people. not all that subtle. Well, if, well, here's the thing if you don't have the eye, you think it makes total sense. Oh, well, look. I'm being culturally responsive. I have Jamal in his neighborhood. Don't all the little black boys live in graffiti laden neighborhoods with trash everywhere? Isn't that where they all live? Right? And don't all little white boys live in neighborhoods where they can shovel snow? Like, 
right? Like, so if you are a person whose underlying belief systems have not been tapped into, you will not see that. You will not see how that is not relevant. It is damaging. And, and this gets to this question of high quality material. So, you know, like there are, there are different standards for what the quality is. There's sort of textual complexity and there's uh, disciplinary knowledge and there's, you know, there's a whole host of things. But what's interesting to me, what just sort of popped into my head as you were talking was we hear so much now about the um, overwhelming progressive ideology that is sweeping schools and like, not so much, really. Not so much, really. <laughs> Not so much, really. Not so much, really. Not so much, really. Nope. Schools and school mm-hmm. systems are really actually, they're institutions. And institutions, by their very nature, are not revolutionary. Mm-mm. Because they they no, have ma'am. to have certain kinds of... And, that's yeah. the strength and the weakness, right? That's weakness, the strength. That's right. There's a real strength to an institutional, you know, slow momentum. You don't you don't move a a big school district right. fast, and there's no. a strength to that, um, but there's also a real weakness. So, mm-hmm. um, but certainly high quality materials standard for what a high quality material is should be that it doesn't reinforce stereotypes. I don't know. Call me crazy. There's a thing. Call me crazy. crazy. I'll call you crazy because I'm crazy too. (laughs) (laughs) Call me crazy. Right. Right. And and I tell you, people, they don't. Oh, oh, yeah, we have one in there. But they don't look at the fine tuning. Like your ears and your eyes have to be finely tuned to understand if you are a person living in in our society, you know, in dominant culture, you're likely to miss that and think having the Jamal on the page is a good thing, right? Not recognizing what you are doing um, to that, you know, and, 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 and the positioning of something as artistic as graffiti, right? If you understand the history of a thing like graffiti, then you would not position it as, you know, um, damage, Right. You would not see it as defacing property, you know, because if you understood what it was about, how it came to be, what it means from culture, what it means from messaging. Right. It's like poetry on work, poetry and art on on a wall. Right. And, And murals and things like that. And you would not you would never sort of position it in the way that it was positioned on that page. And this was for like third graders. So automatically, you're trying to help third graders understand how to be good citizens. Well, you've already decided that this particular young man, this little boy, actually not young man, he's a boy because he's a third grader, lives in a certain neighborhood. And so if that's all you know, it's all you ever see about a black child, that's the one that sticks. Right. And so this and, and then that goes to how do we read? Right. Like we read image and we read word. Right. That's your, you know, really thinking about the intersection of language and image on pages to really get to this idea that Dr. Tatum talked about as advanced reading. 
right? It's it's about, you know, the reading within the context and the reading with what's on the page and, and making those critical relationships between word and image and, and, and the ideas that you bring to the table. Because when you come to reading, you bring your whole self with you, right? Like you don't leave your like part of you at home, like you and your reading, you and yourself come to it. It seems to me we've raised like lots and lots of questions. I don't know that we have like no teacher could come away listening to the episodes we've done on reading saying, oh, okay, now I need to do X. I mean, mm-hmm. so we didn't, that wasn't what we were trying to do here. What we were trying to do, well, I don't know that we really set out to do this, but I think what we did was we really complicated questions, right? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> we made it more complicated than easier. Yeah, probably. We didn't make it easy because this isn't easy. Teaching right. so, teaching right. reading is not right. easy. It is, That's right. as Laura, uh, Louisa Motes wrote many years ago, 20 years ago, uh, teaching reading is rocket science. It is rocket science. It actually is rocket it science. Is, right. It's certainly brain science, right? You mm-hmm. need to have some kind of understanding of how the brain works, how the, how the, how the brain incorporates information, um, how the human mind, uh, you know, absorbs information. There are lots and lots and lots of particular things you need to know. We didn't help with that. But I, what I hope we helped with was hearing some frameworks for how to think about this. And when you hear Nell Duke say, all kids can learn to read. Yes, there might be a couple of kids with hydrocephaly or you know, some very particular uh, cognitive uh, disabilities. You're not gonna come across those kids every day. You're, the kids you come across That's every right. day- That's right. Mm-hmm. Can learn to read. So now how do we That's figure right. out how to do that? That's right. And I think one yeah. of the, yeah, that's like absolutely right. If we if we said nothing else, I think we got, and you brought it up in your example is the need to understand your ideology, right? right. Take Nell Duke's words and then check it against your ideology, <laughs> right? And and then think about the structures we've put in place. You know, mm-hmm. Mark Rosenbaum really, uh, you know, I as I say that it kind of haunts me. If we if we if we want a caste system, that's that's what we've got. We've got the school right. st- stru- structures to produce a caste system. If we don't, or maintain it, uh, yeah, yeah, to either produce yeah. or maintain. If we don't want that, well, let's let's rethink some of these structures. Let's rethink some of these ways we do things. Um, and of course, uh, Alfred Tatum, uh, he he was uh, the the thing he said at the very end of our conversation. And I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but basically he said, um, this isn't just about reading. This is about their lives. Their life. That's right. It's about their lives. He's right. He's absolutely right. It is. And it's about our it's about life their lives. as a it's nation. Our lives as a because nation. Because if we're That's not right. committed to our fellow citizens, you know, who who are we committed to? Then we're just committed right. to ourselves. And To ourselves. Um, Dog eat dog world is a really painful. Indeed, world it is, to live in. and we seem to be marching ourselves right to it. But maybe we can we can come back from the edge. If we come back from the edge, 
because I, I agree. I think we're at the edge. If we come back from the edge, that's how we will be an exceptional nation. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are so many people who really want to see us as exceptional. And I think if we can come back from the edge and reestablish a democratic mindset mm-hmm. and 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 then build a stable democracy, that will be what we give the world. I agree with the that. Exceptionalism that we give the world. I agree. All day, twice on Sunday, for good measure. All right. So, you know, we we could do this all day, but I think I think we we've kind of we've kind of run through what we wanted to run through and so that wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times, a podcast of the Education Trust. I've provided links in the show notes if you're interested in learning more about the CCSSO call. This is the final of a series of conversations we've had about reading instruction in the spring, and I'll link to all of them in the show notes. Another resource is the second season of Extraordinary Districts, which profiles three districts and talks a lot about the reading instruction they're doing. I hope we've given our listeners a deeper understanding of why reading is such a hot topic and some of the ways educators can move forward so that our children not only learn to read, but learn to be engaged citizens who help build and shape democracy. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast and the Wallace Foundation, which provides financial support. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast and composed its theme music. This is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangerine Marshall. See you next time.